0: Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. We are invited to gather, go, give, and grow together by the power of His Spirit in today's episode we continue our advent journey through the poetry of isaiah the prophet for what we are calling the servant songs last week we learned that christmas is about the incarnation of the humble servant who came to make all things right this teaching from pastor scott osborne is entitled the true light bearer
1: we are in the middle of the advent series a christmas series called the servant songs looking at how Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah, presents this unique figure in four different poems, four different songs about a figure called the servant. And last week we introduced Isaiah chapter 42, the first servant song, and today I want to deal with the second servant song in Isaiah chapter 49. But before we get there, I just made you jump into the middle of a massive book, in fact, maybe one of the most densely uh, misinterpreted, hard-to-read books in the Bible, the book of Isaiah. And I think the book of Isaiah is really significant because when you look at the New Testament, all the writers in the New Testament, the main book that they quote from are from the Psalms and from Isaiah. And so Isaiah has a lot to do with the story of God, has a lot to do with the New Testament. And I just want to take a few minutes and actually give you a huge overview of the book of Isaiah. And uh, we'll slowly narrow our way down to our passage this morning. And I have this on a slide for you uh, that you can take a picture of or I'll send it to you if you want more pictures of this. Uh, But Isaiah is broken into two parts, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 and Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. And uh, the first part deals with the nation of Israel and their rebellion and their struggle with idolatry and all the nations. And you can just read uh, those first 39 chapters along with some historical accounts of what's happening around 800 B.C. in the life of Judah and Israel, but then in chapters 40 through 66, the end of the second half, the end of the book of Isaiah, there's a dramatic turn, and that is what I want to break down for you this morning, and, and what we could say is that we could break down Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 into a couple different units. We could break it down into two sections, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. We call this the possibility of restoration. And then in chapters 56 through 66, the second half, deals with the life of restoration. And so in the first part, 40 through 55, restoration, and why we say possible, is called into question by the prophet Isaiah and the people of God first about restoration because of all the idolatry and sin and injustice in chapters 1 through 39. The first question, the first possibility about uh, restoration that comes to mind in the life of Israel is ability. Can God restore such a wicked people? You could read Isaiah chapter 1 to get a picture of what this looks like, but there is injustice going on throughout all the streets of Israel. And so ability, can God actually restore such a wicked, unjust people? But then second intention, does he want to restore does he want to bring back his people in all of their rebellion? God would be just and fair to actually leave us to ourselves. And so the second question that Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 deals with does is, does God actually want to? And actually we see that in both of these questions, they deal with the character and the nature of God. And I think in many ways, when we read Isaiah 40-55, to we resonate with these two things. Can God actually restore me? Or am I too sinful, too wicked, too irredeemable, too unlovable? And intention, even if I wasn't as bad as I think I am, does God even want me? And what we see in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 is the character and the nature of God is that he is a powerful God. He will bear his strong arm and defeat all of the powers to come and restore us because he wants to. He loves us. Then Isaiah chapters 56 through 66 is the life of restoration. This is the picture of what life in this restored state will actually look like. And we come to Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, where even in the Old Testament, there is a promise of a new world, a new creation, that God is going to rend the heavens. He's going to come down. He's going to create a brand new world. And so we could look at Isaiah 40 through 66 from those two sections. But it even breaks down a little bit more because we could break down Isaiah 40 to 55 into two separate sections. And we see in chapters 40 to 48 that God declares that he will demonstrate his deity, his power to the world by delivering his servants, Israel, from Babylon. What we see is God's intent, his declaration to restore and then Isaiah 49-55, through 55, that second section, is focusing on the ministry of the servant on behalf of Israel. And after the servant brings restoration through the powerful arm of God, we now can come to the third section, again, which we've already talked about, the, the life and the witness of God's people. And so when we look at Isaiah, we're going to even break it down even one more into that middle section, Isaiah 49-55. through 55. We have three more sections, but Isaiah 49 through 52, the verse 12, we have in this unique section an anticipation of salvation and the possibility of restoration going on between God and the nation, and this is growing in intensity between 40 to 48, and now it's even escalating more in 49 through 52. And the picture of deliverance is not just for Israel, but takes on a universal, a nation's to the island's flavor. And it all focuses, Isaiah 49, this first section through 52, focuses on the servants who will, for God, win the victory over all the enemies. And then we come to the third section. That Isaiah chapter 54 on the far right there, I think it's blue, verses 55 through 55, 13. Yahweh is now not just anticipating, but there is a picture that this, this victory has been accomplished, and he's inviting the life of Israel, the people of God, into his victory. And that middle section how do we go from anticipation and prophetic word about what's going to happen to God inviting us into that world? Well, Pastor Nate's can look at that section next week. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, we see a picture of the suffering servants. And that is how victory comes, is through a suffering servant. But last week, we looked at the servants as a, a, a justice figure, someone who's going to come and bring justice to the world, who's going to do it in, in means and ways that we would never even think that a man would do that. And today, what I want to look at is that the servant is not going to be a justice bringer, but he's going to be a light bearer, a light bearer. And we find the second servant song, as we unpack all of Isaiah, come now down to Isaiah chapter 49, the second song about the servant. Let's read uh, verses 49 through uh, 49 chapters, 49 verses 1 through 6. In Isaiah chapter 49, in the second servant song, as I pull up the passage for us to read together, here we go, says this Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servants, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God." And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This Advent, we celebrate a servant who is bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. In church, today, as we sit in Chesapeake, Virginia, we experience that salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's what we want to unpack this morning. So would you pray with me, Father, as we jump into this passage, this powerful book, this powerful chapter about the servant, I pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight to be able to hear from you, to be able to celebrate this Christmas season of a servants who not will just come and bring justice, and, but also come and bring light to us. And we'll give you praise for that in Jesus' name, amen. The imagery of a light bearer. Resonates with me. My favorite thing about Christmas, I believe, is the lights. Uh, I I don't do this myself. Um, I'm kind of lazy on this, but one of the things I love to do is when we're driving around neighborhoods, I'll pull into neighborhoods I know that are decked out with lights because I love lights. There's something about lights. And this is the depiction that we get of the servant. He is one who is full of lights. But before we get into that final section there about him being the lights, let's unpack a little bit. Let's go to verse 3. The Lord Yahweh says to me, "You are my servants, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor." The first thing we need to address in this passage is again is who is the servants? It's possible here to see that the servant would be the nation of Israel, as it says, You are my servant, Israel. But I think for several reasons, and we'll unpack more of these as we go through the sermon together this morning, but I think it's better to actually see that it isn't the nation that is actually being talked about, but it's actually an individual within the nation. So it's important to note here that the way that the Hebrew grammar and the Hebrew language works is that the words servants and Israel are parallel to one another. So it's almost as if what the Lord is saying to the servant is this, is that you are my Israel. You are my Israel slash servants in whom I will be glorified. And so rather than identifying who the servant is, It is actually giving a function of who the servant is. So who is the servant? He is going to function as the nation of Israel is supposed to function. What then is Israel's function? What was Israel's task? If this servant is not Israel, not being identified as Israel, but is actually being described as someone who's going to take up the nation, take up the function of the nation, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Where Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to himself, not just for Abraham's benefit, not just for the blessing of Abraham and his family, but the end of Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, it says this, and you will be a blessing to the nations. The point is that Israel does not exist for itself any more than the church exists for itself. Abraham existed, experienced the blessing of God so that the nations could come and experience the blessing that God had intended for all of creation to enjoy but never actually got to experience. And so now, several hundred years later, we come to a servant song that is a reminder to the nation of Israel of their function, of their task. And their function is to be a blessing to the nations. The means by which the nations would experience the blessing would come through Israel. And so now God is saying, because Israel, as a nation, is so blind, so deaf, so rebellious, how could that nation show anyone the way back to the Lord? How could a nation who couldn't even find its own way to Yahweh be a blessing to show the nations how they could come to Yahweh? And this is the dilemma that the servant came to solve. The servants, he will be for Israel and the world what Israel could not be. Faced with Israel's failures, God does not wipe out the nation. He simply devises another way in which Israel's servanthood, Israel's priestly role as a kingdom of priests could be worked out, and it's going to be worked out through a Israelite, one Israelite, one Israelite who is coined here as the servants. However, this servant who is coming does not function just like any other man. When he comes to fulfill his function, he is not going to be identified like an Isaiah, like a prophet. Here we know that Isaiah is not talking about himself, but some other figure, because he would have never thought of himself as the ideal Israel. He would have never imagined or presumed that he or another prophet like Amos or Jeremiah or, or Ezekiel would ever be able to assume the role of being able to bring not only Israel back to God, but the nations back to God. So, when it is thought and you combine this lofty role of the servant, we come to see that this servant is no mere human. He is a human par excellence, if you will. Isaiah and all the prophets who spoke about this servant in different ways understood this man to be something very different, far superior to anything they themselves knew, thought of themselves, and experienced. And so, functioning as the true Israel, Jesus was not like any other man, as even shown here in the Old Testament. But when he functioned as the true Israel, the servant he also experienced the aches of humanity. Look at verse 4. It says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. These words are attributed to the servant. And when the servant comes to bring restoration to Israel for the sake of the nations... He's not going to come in great pomp and circumstance. We looked at this last week in Isaiah chapter 42, is that the way that he's going to bring justice is a way that is far different than anyone else who's tried to bring justice. See, God does not approach the arrogance and the oppression of the world and its rulers with greater arrogance and greater oppression. Rather, the way God works is he comes with humility. Humility. He comes with the vulnerability and the powerlessness of a child. The servant does not come to dominate, he doesn't even come to pronounce from a throne. As we'll see next week, he comes as a child who comes to be slain like a lamb. The servant's statement here that he's labored in vain and spent his strength for nothing hints at this idea of vulnerability and and powerlessness. He he experienced the powerlessness experience that you and I as humans experience. This is the reality of the servant. He took on humanity. He took on flesh. He felt the frustration and the feelings of futility that you and I are all too familiar with. In fact, everyone who inhabits flesh, everyone who takes on humanity in this cursed world experiences the frustration and the futility. I mean, just think, do you like to go to work every day? Do you find every day of work to be the most amazing thing ever? Or in the midst of that, do you feel the aches? Of work, the frustrations of work? Do you feel the aches and the strains of relationships? Do you feel the aches and the pains of always being worried about where your next money is coming from? Do you feel the aches and the pains of your child and your children and all the struggles they're experiencing? You see, in to be a part of this world means to experience the frustration and the futility of the curse that's on this world. And no Christian can read these words, I believe, without relating them to the ministry of Jesus himself, that when he died, he could have asked himself, what had he accomplished? To all appearances, he was powerless. He couldn't even save himself. But in the midst of all this crying out, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the midst of such utter futility that it looked like, that he felt like? There is also a deep trust in God. Look at verse, of, the second half of verse 4. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hands and my reward is with my God. You see, the servant knew who he was and whose he was. So we knew what he had to do. See, in the midst of utter futility and frustration and feeling the aches and the pains, which is very real, which is very much part of our world, there can also be in the midst of that an an understanding of our identity, who we are, whose we are, who we belong to, and when we know who we are and whose we are, then we know what to do. And we know that in the end, God is going to make all things right. Why? Because I know who I am and who I belong to and what I should be doing. And even though I don't always feel like doing the right thing, I don't even feel like doing the things I know I should be doing. The servant, in the same way, trusted the Father that his life was in the Father's hands and that the reward that the Father had promised him would be his. I don't know if you caught this, but did you miss the two-sidedness of what is being said here? On the one hand, we think that to admit feelings of futility is not to trust God. Do you ever feel afraid to tell other people the emptiness, the futility, the aches and the pains in your life because you feel like when you do so, you're not trusting God? On the other hand, we often believe that if we really trusted God, we'd never have these feelings of futility. But the servant shows us that neither is really incompatible with the other. Because trust has to do ultimately, ultimately with the final outcome. And this servant is fully trusting in God, that he is going through the futility and and the aches and the pains of what it means to be human. Because he knows that at the end, the Father is going to bring about his reward. So, he lived for the sake of the Father. He didn't live for the judgments of other people. He didn't live for the approval of other people. You see, when we get our eyes off of the Father, we forget who we are, we forget whose we are, and so we don't know what we should be doing. And when we begin looking for other people's approval and having other people judge us, then we don't know what we should be doing, and we're just lost in this, in this chaos of life. But it is very possible, on one hand, to admit the futility and the aches and the pains that we feel and also have a complete trust in a good God. This is who the servant is. He is taking on the role of Israel. He is the true Israel who is going to come not just like any other man, but as God himself. And yet he's going to enter into the Advent story as a baby taking on the very realities of what we experience. That's who the servant is. But now in verses 5 and 6, we see what the servant's mission was, what his task was. And as we look at these verses, I just have a couple comments as we close our final point here. First, these verses make Israel, the nation, the servant, incomprehensible. What I mean by that is these verses make, if you think Israel as a nation is a servant, these verses make that idea in a sense incompatible. Why? Because it is the mission of the servant to do what Israel could never do. What I mean by that? Jacob, it says in verse 5, is the point of Jacob, is to bring Jacob back to God and to gather Israel to himself. Israel could never reconcile Jacob back to a right relationship with God. Israel could never reconcile itself. You just look at the history of Israel. Over and over and over again, this nation is incompatible with fulfilling its role to bring itself to be right with God so the nations can be right with God. So it cannot be the nation. The servant is an individual who is going to restore and bring all of Israel back. And what we begin to see as we unpack more and more of the Old Testament and as we unpack the servant next week specifically is that the real problem with the nation of Israel, the hindrance to them actually becoming a a kingdom of priests and making all the nations come to God, the principal reason is not because of Babylon and not because of Assyria. The real problem is much deeper The real problem were the powers of Satan, sin, and death that held sway over them. And the only way that Israel could be restored back to God is someone to actually come and to deal with the powers of Satan, sin, and death. And this is what the servant is promising. He is going to come and restore all of God's people, restore Israel back to God. Now notice, it says he was set apart for this mission in the womb. Like Jeremiah, like John the Baptist, like Paul. Each of these people were set apart by God in the womb. It was not accidental. It says in verse 2 that this servant was concealed and hid. And the reason is is God was preparing this servant to be pulled out like like an arrow and a sharp sword at the right and most opportune time. And 2,000 years ago... In Bethlehem, God pulled out his sword. And he brought forth of a virgin, a child, who is this promised servant. And he was honored by the Father, and he was given strength to complete this mission. And so what was the mission of the servant? It was to actually restore Israel back to God. But then I love this. Because this is where you and I fit into this narrative, into the Advent season. This mission of restoring Israel was far too small for such a servant. He says in verse 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to just restore the tribes of Jacob and bring them back to Israel the ones I have kept. That's too small. You know what else you're going to do? I'm going to make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here, the Lord makes an astounding statement that the task of restoring Israel back to himself is not a large enough task for the servant. The nature of the servant, the calling of the servant, the preparation of the servant has far greater task attached to it. And that task is to save the entire world's. So notice this, in order for the nations to experience the salvation, Israel first had to be restored. Once Israel was restored back to God, then Israel could actually be a light to the nations. And this is what we see in the New Testament, is that God, in the person of Jesus, comes on the scene, and he becomes and takes on the role of Israel, and he calls to himself twelve disciples. You ever thought, why twelve? Twelve because he's reorganizing Israel around himself. Israel will no longer be organized around 613 commands, but Israel will be organized around the actual servant. And he calls 12 disciples, and he's bringing back Israel in a right relationship to God, so that then the blessing can go to the nations, in which you see the 12 leading the gospel light to the nations. But why does the servant here, why is he described as a light to the nations? What is the imagery of light that's being addressed? I don't know if you noticed this, but last week I stopped on purpose because I knew I was going to talk about this this week. But in Isaiah chapter 42, the very next two verses after we stop next week say this. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase, both attributed to the servant in Isaiah 49 and last week in Isaiah chapter 42. Why? To open the eyes of the blinds, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. See, those who have not, experiencing, have not experienced the blessing of the servant are people who are blind. They live in darkness. I don't know if you ever thought this. Uh, my son started taking Taekwondo and one of the um, parents there is actually blind and she walks around this blind stick and it made me just stop and think for a few minutes the other day. And to actually experience true darkness... And never see light, wouldn't that be a a terrible experience? I can also remember uh, in a cavern in Denver, not Denver, but in Colorado, I was in a Glenwood cavern. And there's only a few places in the entire earth that you can experience a total blackout. One is at the bottom of the ocean, I think one is like in a black hole, and the third one is in a cavern. And they turned the lights out and it felt like 20 minutes, but it was really like 20 seconds. There's one of the most terrifying images of my life is just living in that darkness. And yet the Messiah, the servant, is pictured as one who's going to open the eyes. He's going to bring the people out of the dungeons of darkness and they're going to experience light. Can you imagine living in a cavern? living at the bottom of the ocean, living blind, never seeing light, and then one day someone snaps your finger and light appears. How beautiful, how glorious that would appear. And yet this is who the servant is. And yet we're blind to the fact that we don't even see the lights. We're blind to the fact that we live in a spiritual darkness because of our idolatry, which impacts all of our being. Our physical life, because of our spiritual life, is filled with turmoil, our ter- filled with turmoil. Our relationships are impaired. We cause harm to other humans because of our sinful actions. In a sense, apart from the servant bringing us light, we live in empty and futility all the days of our life. I mean, think about this. Apart from Jesus, you just keep searching for the next bit of light that will actually bring joy to you and when you get it it never satisfies you and you have to keep going on from one to thing to the next to the next to the next and Isaiah says there's a servant who's coming to bring light and when you look at the lights the true light the light of the world Jesus he fills your eyes with sights he brings you out of darkness into true freedom And that is what we celebrate. So I pray that as you walk around and shop and go to holiday parties, all these things are absolutely, in a sense, necessary and fun. But in the midst of it, remember that there's a servant who came to bring true light. And that light is the light of life that gives us vitality and meaning and purpose. So look to that light this Advent season. Father, help us to be people who walk in the light. Help us be people who see the servants as the true light bearer who has brought us out of darkness, out of emptiness, out of futility, and has given us freedom and given us joy. And we thank you that this servant came and he obeyed and he went through the frustrations. And because of His love and His trust for you, He went to the cross and paid all the penalty for our sin and defeated all the powers of Satan, sin, and death and has brought to us the new world through His resurrection.
0: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.